You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, I thank you for the Cathedral Church of the Advent and all those gathered here tonight at Cranmer House uh, for this event uh, during Lent and for Craig especially being with us and his wife Ellen. They're traveling from California. You're keeping them safe. And uh, his words to us at the lunch hour these days and uh, this evening, Lord, as we uh, contemplate what it means to defend the faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that we each of us might be uh, better prepared when uh, when challenged and, and, and have confidence to go to people to share the faith of your son. Lord, give us what we need. Uh, speak to us by your word this evening. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, thanks all for being here, uh, especially if, if, if you're not a part of the Advent community. If you're visiting with us this evening, you've been interested uh, in this event, uh, welcome uh, welcome to uh, one of our several Lenten evening events. If you don't know, uh, we have a, a long-standing Lenten, Lenten preaching series that's apparently it's been going on for 112 years. And what we do is we have preachers each weekday at the lunch hour at 12.05 at our church downtown. And with some of the speakers that we bring in during Lent uh, for the preaching series, we'll ask them to do events like this if we... Uh, think they might have uh, some specialty that you might like to hear on. So that's what we have this evening. Uh, before I tell you about that, I just want to let you know that there are two more events like this coming up. Uh, next week on Monday, March 25th at 7 p.m. downtown at our church uh, at uh, 6th and 20th North, uh, we're going to have Kevin Twitt. Maybe you know who he is. He's the founder of Indelible Grace and still involved with that. They're real instrumental in the sort of uh, uh, retuned hymns movement. So uh, uh, bringing modern instrumentation to classical hymnody. Um, and so Kevin, not only is he a good musician, uh, he's a great storyteller. He's kind of well known for telling the stories behind the hymns that they've retuned. Uh, so he's doing a hymns and uh, stories event next Monday, if you'd like to come to that at 7 p.m. And then David Zoll, who many of you know, uh, son of Paul Zoll, who used to be the uh, dean and rector here and also the director of Mockingbird Ministries, is coming out with another book called Seculosity. The subtitle is way too long for me to remember. Um, but so we're doing a book launch with him on Wednesday, April 3rd, right here. Same time, 7 p.m., but on a Wednesday uh, with David Zoll. So uh, you might like those. Uh, you can find out more information about that in our church online at adventbirmingham.org. Uh, and I just want to invite you, if you're not a member of the Advent, uh, if you're looking for a church home, to consider being with us on a Sunday. Uh, we have five services on Sunday now, 7.30, 9, two services at 11 a.m. and at 5 uh, p.m. downtown Birmingham. Uh, well, tonight's event uh, really is to help us live into our vision for our church. We say that we're uh, a church with a living, daring confidence in uh, the gospel of God's grace through Jesus Christ uh, to give you the equipment to have a stronger, living, daring confidence uh, in that message uh, to, for the sake of evangelism. We're going to talk about apologetics, but uh, I'm hoping, and I studied with Craig before, one of the main things that he brings is that apologetics is helpful for evangelism. 
uh, in that uh, when we share the message of Jesus Christ, people inevitably ask us questions. It's sort of like uh, if you're speaking a foreign language and you know enough to say hello in that language, but then someone talks back to you and you're sort of like, uh, 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 and you don't know the second turn or third turn, apologetics is helpful with that, to have that sort of second and third and fourth turn in the conversation uh, when you present the message of Jesus Christ crucified. Uh, so really, uh, I hope that this helps give you the uh, equipment that you need to share the gospel message. We do some trainings like this on occasion around evangelism and apologetics. If you think you might be interested in future events like this, I'd love for you to tell me. Just give me your full name and uh, email address. If you received an email about this event tonight, you don't need to put your name on this list because you're already on it. Okay? But if you would like to be on this list, uh, please let us know if you'll pass that around. Make sure it gets around the room. I'll say more about this later, but there's also uh, some folks who are offering to read one of Craig's books, uh, Religion on Trial, as a next step following this event. If you would like to read on the topic, some folks would like to discuss it with you. If you're interested in that, sign the sheet, uh, and we'll send out an email about that opportunity. Okay. Craig Parton is our speaker this evening. Uh, he's one of our preachers, of course, for the Lenten Preaching series. He's a trial attorney uh, by profession. That's his full-time job. Uh, he's a partner at Price Postal. Is my Postel. Postel. Price Postel. Why don't you say it? And Parma? Price Postel and Parma. Price Postel and Parma in Santa Barbara, California. He's also the United States Director of the International Academy of Apologetics uh, at human rights and evangelism in Strasbourg, France, where I spent uh, my sabbatical last summer with him and John Warwick Montgomery studying apologetics uh, for two weeks. And really, you ought to know his wife Ellen is back there in the blue dress, and she really runs the show. Uh, uh, she's the... Uh, uh, Craig wouldn't be Craig without Ellen. I can say that with confidence. I mean, so she uh, also works with him in, in putting that program together. Uh, Craig's also the author of several books. Chiefly, the one I want to make sure you get in your hands is uh, Religion on Trial, which just came out in an updated edition. We have that book and other books and resources at the table in the lobby if you'd like to purchase a copy uh, after the event. Um, and one thing that's unique about Craig in the world of apologetics is he upholds the evidence for Jesus Christ. That's the primary thing that he's interested in, uh, that there is solid evidence. And as, a, as an attorney, um, that's the, the thing that he's about, is, is making a, a, a case, a solid defense for when someone challenges the Christian faith. So what we're going to do tonight is Craig's going to present for a bit. Uh, uh, and then I'm going to come up here and join him uh, toward the end of our time together for an open forum Q&A. The topic tonight is the do's and don'ts of apologetics. Hopefully that raises some questions for you. We can bat those around. But if there are other things, we can go, we can go anywhere in the sort of realm of uh, uh, challenges that people bring to the Christian faith and, and how we approach that when we get to the Q&A. Well, that's all I have to say. Craig, do you want to come up here and I'll hand you the mic and why don't we greet him as he walks up? Thank you, Matt. Um, 
Tonight is the do's and don'ts of apologetics. Uh, discuss with Matt the various things that we could do together in our short time before we had the Q&A. Um, one suggestion was talking about the case for Christianity and the actual evidence that supports people believing in Jesus Christ. Um, those books out there address that specific evidence. I don't know if we'll have a chance to get into that tonight because what we're talking about tonight is some specific practical things to do and to avoid when you're involved in the apologetical task. But we spent an enormous amount of time in Strasbourg and in the books in the back developing the specific evidence for why people should believe in Christ, uh, particularly the evidence for the resurrection. And so uh, to the extent that we can uh, incorporate that into our discussion, we'll, we'll do so. Uh, but there's some temptations that come when you're involved in the apologetical task that we want to talk about tonight that you want to avoid. But first, uh, not knowing whether you've heard any of the discussion at the Advent, uh, I want to be clear about what apologetics is. Uh, apologetics comes directly from 1 Peter 3.15. It means to defend, to give a reason for the hope that is within you yet with meekness and gentleness, according to 1 Peter 3.15. So apologetics is biblically commanded. Uh, it's not a suggestion. It's not for the clergy to do. It's what we do as laity every day when people ask us questions. It's being ready when someone raises a, a concern about Christianity or a challenge or looks for an opportunity to present Christ and Him crucified. So there's a few suggestions that I have as you're involved in the apologetical process. And as I mentioned this morning, uh, some people have a bad feeling about doing apologetics because they've been involved in some esoteric discussions about the existence of God. Uh, they've been proving, spending an inordinate amount of time uh, proving up the traditional proofs, establishing the traditional proofs for the existence of God, uh, working on the ontological argument for the existence of God, the contingency argument, all these traditional arguments for the existence of God and have gotten bogged down into the complexity of it and say, you know, that's really for people who are philosophically trained, not for me. Well, that's not what apologetics is ultimately about. It's about removing obstacles people have to putting their trust in Jesus Christ and presenting affirmatively the evidence for the case for Jesus Christ. So apologetics has gotten a bad name. Part of it is because of the word. Sounds like you're going around apologizing. And the second reason it's been in disfavor uh, is because it's been focused so many times on proving the existence of God and staying far away from proving the claims of Jesus Christ. So your apologetics we'll talk about tonight uh, it's good that we are having a discussion about the affirmative basis for using apologetics and focusing it on Christ and Him crucified. So let me just mention a few things before we have our question and answer session. Uh, the first thing I want to encourage you is you don't begin by defending. You give the gospel first, apologetics second. Some people can't stand it when they've gotten some training in apologetics, they have to start by defending the Christian faith. No, you start by explaining and seeing if somebody has an objection to Christian faith. If they don't, 
Praise the Lord. Bring them into the kingdom, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22. You've got another Christian. Uh, you don't start by creating objections and creating a defensive posture. We're not interested in making people um, get in an argument with us. Apologetics is not about winning arguments. It's about giving the gospel first, which assumes, duh, that you know what the gospel is. The gospel first is not about your morality. It's not about the superiority of the Democratic Party or if I'm in Alabama, the Republican Party. Uh, it is not defending our president on political issues. Um, it is not about moralism. It is not about getting your life right so that you can clean yourself up for God. The gospel is all about what Christ has done for you and for me. It is about a total rescue. It is about our lack of cooperation with God. It is about our rebellion. Whenever I talk about the gospel, when I talk about me, I talk about my rebellion, my sin, my ingratitude, my inability to live according to God's commandments. I never put myself up in my own morality as something a non-Christian should follow. Why? Because God inevitably has a way of showing my neighbor or that person my true nature, which is a disgusting, vile sinner, which is what I am professional at. <laughs> and don't laugh because you are also professional. <laughs> You're an expert in one thing. It's called sin. Um, so give the gospel first. The gospel involves a remedy. And so often the gospel is presented without without expressing in its full force the law that, that people have transgressed. So the gospel involves first law and then gospel. The reformers got this very, very clearly. You give the law to satisfied sinners, you give the gospel to terrified sinners. The reformers were very clear on this. We have gotten into a place where the gospel doesn't sound like very good news to people because they don't know how bad the disease is that the scripture explains. Unless people know how bad your condition is, the remedy seems absurd. God crucifying his son, blood on a cross. What is the point of any of that if we're basically nice people just need a little moral correction? That's not the picture painted of the disease in scripture. So when we give the gospel first, we want to be clear that we understand what it is. What is the gospel? I've told you what it's not. It's not about your moral code. Uh, it's not about your ability to follow God's law. It's not about being in the correct political situation. It's about Christ and Him crucified. It's about Him risen for our justification. It's about 1 Corinthians 15. There, Paul tells us knocks us on the head about what the gospel is. I delivered a first importance to you. How Christ died for sinners, was crucified and rose again on our behalf. That's when you're involved in the gospel. When you're talking about a real Jesus Christ crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, crucified, risen again in real time in history. When you're talking about that, you're talking about the gospel. And I would rather lose an argument on the resurrection 
and the case for Jesus Christ than win an argument on the existence of God. As I mentioned on Wednesday in the sermon, even the devil is a theist. Making this country mere theists is not what God has intended for us. We are to preach the gospel to people, the saving work of Jesus Christ. So give the gospel first, apologetics second. Number two, point number two, suggestion number two. Think of it as a mere suggestion, a mere suggestion. Keep your apologetic Christocentric, Christocentric focused on mere Christianity, what C.S. Lewis calls mere Christianity. Work to equip yourself to present mere Christianity in a Christocentric way. That is focusing on the case for Jesus Christ. Not on the first article of the creed, God the Father's existence. Uh, Not on focusing on other side things, but on the case for Jesus Christ. Let me suggest to you that it is a mistake in apologetics to focus on the beginning of time or the end of time. Those are two areas that we know the least about. Scripture focuses the most on one week in the life of Jesus Christ. Most of the Gospels are focused on the Passion Week, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And your apologetics should be focused on that also. Not on the beginning of time, which we have some information on, but we don't have an explicitly detailed set of information on. We'll talk about that in dealing with Darwinian evolution in our question session, I'm sure. But we've got to be careful about spending an inordinate amount of time proving to the non-Christian six-day, 24-hour creationism or old earth or young earth creationism. You can argue that stuff until the cows come home and never move a person an inch closer to Jesus Christ. Similarly, you can move to the end of time which is where, as I was raised in Baptist churches, I was raised in Christian science in a cult. Uh, basically, everyone in California is born in a cult. Um, so just, I, I understand your, how you view me. So just to assure you, I was born in a cult. Christian science, Mary Baker Eddy's uh, Christian science. Um, the focus there was on uh, mental uh, gymnastics, to, to envision a God of philosophical uh, clarity. Uh, Christian science, all you need to know is neither Christian nor science. Um, but the, the focus was not on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we get involved in a Christocentric apologetic, we're interested in focusing on mere Christianity, the center of scripture, not what happens at the end of time. An inordinate amount of preaching in evangelical circles, which is what I grew up in for 20 years before uh, becoming into Reformation theology, an inordinate amount of time is spent on the end days. Uh, For example, uh, there's apparently a number of pastors who believe they know the weekend Jesus is returning. Um, Even though our Lord himself did not have that piece of information during his earthly ministry, Uh, But Pastor X 
in Dallas. No, notice I didn't say Alabama. In Dallas somewhere. Knows the precise weekend. Avoid that stuff. Be very, very careful. Scripture and the creeds are pretty careful about what they say about the end times. There's going to be one. Christ is going to really return to judge the living and the dead. Keep your apologetic to that. Stay out of the end. Then there's the ten-headed beast, which is the European common market. Um, that is always trouble. So beware of, of focusing on the beginning of time or the end of time. Keep it on what C.S. Lewis calls mere Christianity. What is mere Christianity? It's that which all Christians hold to. It's the Apostles' Creed. Um, if you run into a Christian who says... Um, I believe everything in the Apostles' Creed except he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, you can give the response, well, that's the most basic heresy of all. Having a Jesus in your floating time but not under uh, Pontius Pilate is the most basic heresy of all. You should be very careful to keep your focus on what the creeds affirm about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If what you're involved in in apologetics can't be found in the creeds, it's not illegitimate, but I'm telling you, you're probably going down a side road. You want to stay particularly focused on the second article of the creed, dealing with Jesus Christ. So that's my second suggestion. Keep it Christocentric and focused on mere Christianity. Third suggestion, never give people problems they don't already have. A temptation when you study apologetics, is you're dying after you've read all this and you've, you've studied in different areas on the objections to Christianity, you're dying just to answer one. You can't stand it. You've got to actually inject apologetics into it. So you talk to the non-Christian. Have you heard of uh, what Christianity claims? Uh, no, I never have. Well, let me explain it to you. You explain it to them. And they say, that's wonderful. I'd like to become a Christian. Well, before you do, doubtless you have problems with the virgin birth. You should be hung for saying that. No, no, we don't give people problems they don't have. Resist the urge to answer questions that aren't being asked. A good apologist answers the question that's asked and if you don't know the answer, admit it. Do not excuse the French BS people. They have a meter. They can tell if you're outside your comfort zone. It's okay to not know the answer. It's humiliating and maybe that'll drive you to find the answer. But it's okay to say to a non-Christian, that is a very good question. You know, I've never heard that before. I suspect there's an answer to it considering there's basically no new apologetical questions. And I'll tell you, most of great apologetical answers are hundreds of years old. Hundreds of years old. So 99% of the questions that are being thought up today have been asked before. But have a sense of humility about it. Admit that you don't know the answer, but you'll try to find an answer if they'd like to get back and discuss it. Instead of blushing and and baloning your way through an answer that isn't you you know is outside of your comfort level non-christians respect that that when we say we don't have all the answers um, 
Okay, so be careful about it. Never give people problems that they don't already have. Be a good listener is really what we're talking about. Fourth, find out what the real problem is. Find out what the real problem is. There is a danger in taking apologetical questions too seriously. Um, I think there's the opposite danger of not taking them seriously enough. Uh, I think Christians tend to poo-poo non-Christians' questions about the faith and say to the effect, or think words to the effect, the reason you're asking about evolution in the Bible is because you're sleeping with a woman outside of marriage. I know there's a psychological moral reason for you asking that question. Don't play psychologist. Answer the question. Don't over-assume that there is a moral reason that the person is raising an apologetical question. In humility, answer their question. But there are times when in conversation with non-Christians, they keep circling back to the same question that you feel has been adequately addressed. And it's obvious that there's something else going on. And if that's something else that's going on is when they say, essentially, you know, I'd have to change my life if I became a Christian. I could no longer engage in behavior X. And in California, it's a long list of things. <laughs> Dating a yak, for example. I can no longer date my pet yak uh, in California. The, these kinds of critical moral issues that come up. You, at certain point, it takes a sensitive, thinking, listening person to a non-Christian to say, you know, it seems to me we've circled back and forth on the same issue. Do you really have an intellectual objection to coming to Christian faith? Or is there something else going on? Is it really a matter of you just want nothing to do with what might happen if Jesus Christ becomes your Lord and Savior? At that point, there's no longer an apologetical hurdle. What's left is the offense of the cross of Christ. Apologetics is not interested in removing the offense of the cross. It's not a fancy intellectual game to be played to get people to remove all obstacles so that they can rationally be argued into the kingdom. It's to eliminate every objection so that the only hurdle that's left is the true hurdle, the offense of the cross. The cross is an offense because it says to all of us, you deserve hell. Well, I'm an upstanding individual citizen. I pay my taxes. I go to school. I've gotten education. To tell me that I'm absolute unworthy sinner is repulsive to me. And that somebody had to pay that price for me that could only be perfect man and perfect God in the one person, two natures, is impossible for me to consider. Well, at that point, you've at least done your job. You've, you've shown the person what the gospel is and that the offense of the cross is never to be removed. That's when the Holy Spirit does its work, does his work, uh, to bring the person to conversion. Uh, that's not apologetics at that point. Apologetics is to remove hurdles and to provide the affirmative evidence for the case for Christianity. Fifth, always keep the goal in mind. The purpose of apologetics is to get people over obstacles. 
It's not to to uh, preach your particular brand of theology. We're mere Christians when we're doing apologetics with a non-Christian. If somebody asks me who's a non-Christian where you go to church, I'll tell them, but begrudgingly because I want the discussion to be on Jesus Christ, not on my church, which I'm sure they've had a bad experience with, no matter if you're Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, Calvinist, Methodist, Pentecostal, or whatever. Um, I try to keep the discussion centered on Christ and Him crucified. And we suggest strongly that you do that. Sixth, be sensitive. Be a good listener in apologetics. Um, Apologetics is not about arguing or opening your mouth and inserting your opinion when it's not being asked for. It's listening to the situation and discerning when there might be an opportunity to begin a discussion with a person that leads to a discussion centrally on Jesus Christ. Um, An apologist is a suggestion. An apologist is a a good apologist is a wide reader, which is why we recommend the books on apologetics that we do. It is, I'm preaching here, it feels good as a lawyer to preach occasionally. Uh, Frustrated, it's been, 12 hours since I preached. It is no sign of your spirituality that your library is full of Christian self-help crap. It isn't. What you want is a wide-ranging library that can help people who are non-Christians with their objections to Christianity. Not self-help, how I got my life together. That isn't drawing people to the Christian faith. That isn't the Christian faith. Why? Because becoming a Christian can be something that tears your family apart, believe it or not. Your kids can hate you for it. I've had people tell me, becoming a Christian was the most difficult thing, the things that I had to give up, the carnage that occurred in my home when I became a Christian. We make no representations about what might happen after they become a Christian other than They are saved eternally because of the work of Jesus Christ. So be sensitive, be a wide reader, be a develop an apologetical library, um, which is broadly based. Uh, One of the books back there is called The Defense Never Rests. In the back of it is a reading list. I unashamedly suggest you get a hold of books like that just to get the reading list. Forget everything else I say in the book. Go to the reading list. It's annotated and begin yourself to start thinking of what you might read. Pick one book in the next year on apologetics that deals with what the non-Christian thinks about Christianity and read it and find an area that interests you. Maybe it's science, maybe it's literature, maybe it's the arts, maybe it's music, maybe you have a fascination with a musician, with an artist, who had a wide impact, who was a believing Christian. Pick one of those books in there that is on a wide range of topics from history, theology, law, uh, the arts, culture, uh, sociology, um, present objections to the Christian faith, and read one book this year that deals with objections a non-Christian might ask and add it to your library so that you have a wide range of things when a non-Christian asks a question, you may not have read the answer, but you know where to go. 
and you know who to ask to get an answer to that question. Develop a wide reading ability. And finally, and lastly, and then we'll move into questions here as soon as we can. Know what problems you might have. What do you mean? You may have things that have bothered you that you haven't resolved that are questions about the Christian faith. It's okay to have questions about it. Um, get your own questions answered. Uh, they may be questions dealing with biblical passages that are difficult, that have never been resolved properly or fully in your mind. Get those answered. You see, doing apologetics, we've talked about and Matt mentioned, is for getting the gospel out to non-Christians. But a side benefit of doing apologetics is it strengthens your own trust in Christ your Savior, in your prayer life will improve. Doing apologetics. It increases your confidence in that. Which is why uh, in churches that we have been in, uh, I have taught apologetics at the youngest ages that we can. Um, I've taught apologetics to 7th and 8th graders. I think we should never wait to high school to teach apologetics. Kids are polemical in 7th grade. Um, if you've had a junior hire, you'd like to ship them to India. Um, they, they challenge. That's exactly when you want to teach the basic 10 questions that non-Christians ask. Get a hold of that, a book like that. R.C. Sproul's Reasons to Believe is a good place to start, or something by Josh McDowell, More Than a Carpenter, or something along those lines. Have a basic 10 questions non-Christians ask book reference in your library that you can give to people and teach it down to the 7th, 8th grade starting level so that kids, when they're going out of high school from your church, are equipped to deal with the objections to Christianity that are going to come even if they go to the local nice college here in town. Uh, they're going to be challenged and they're going to come back after, as I mentioned on Wednesday, sometimes with objections to Christian faith. Objectively, honestly, and humbly, I will tell you, this room could be tripled in size of the parents that I have talked to who have been in absolute despair that they never got any training in the defense of the faith for their kids. Their kids have asked at home the basic questions with no answer being given and the suggestion that there really isn't an answer. That basically mom and dad believe this uh, because they grew up on it and don't ask those questions about the faith. The faith is to be believed, not tested. Well, Jude says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Otherwise, you are gullible. And when kids are at that point of asking those questions, we have the responsibility to present the answers to them. So give the gospel first, apologetic second, keep your apologetic Christocentric, never give people problems they don't already have, find out what the real problem is. Don't over-assume every apologetical question is legitimate, but don't poo-poo apologetical questions. Always keep the goal in mind. The goal in mind is not to make mere theists. The goal is for people to become Christians. And be sensitive and a particularly good listener. And know where you are, the questions that you may have. That it's okay to question and have problems with certain texts or passages. Get them resolved.
we stand on the shoulders of giants in apologetics. Uh, most of the apologetical difficult questions today uh, were answered by Augustine in correspondence with Jerome in the 5th century. Um, Luther, Calvin dealt with these. The great apologists of the 18th century in England, the Anglican apologists dealt with this stuff, Hammer and Tong. Uh, there are answers out there, and it's just a matter of knowing where to go to get those answers. Um, I'll suggest a, one particular apologetical approach, and then we'll open it up for questions. A fundamental approach to non-Christians is I want them to use the reasoning they use every day to get up in the morning and cross the street and go to work. They apply that reasoning, which is the empirical method, basically, gathering evidence, making decisions based on probability. That reasoning, it's not Christian reasoning, it's just logic and the empirical method. You've got to be a human being to use it. It's not just something that only Christians use. That reasoning, if applied to Christian truth claims, will vindicate Christianity. That's the fundamental technique of apologetics as learned at Strasbourg, but as applied by apologists through the centuries. Encourage non-Christians that you're not asking them to engage in spiritual reasoning to become a Christian. It's one of the most damaging things that happens in, in Christian evangelism. Well, we all know you can't possibly understand any of this because you're bound in sin. Uh, that's theologically true. But as we said today, that's you're operating outside of the house of salvation, right? Scripture looks at this as that's where you reason with people, you talk with them, you argue with them, you listen to them, and you urge them to believe in Jesus Christ. You act as if everything depended on their decision. That's you act like an Arminian, for heaven's sake. But you believe like a Calvinist. When they become a Christian, you say, and by the way, you know all that stuff about receiving Jesus and walking down the sawdust trail? He did it all from the beginning. He gave you the faith to believe. You are completely secure in that. That's what we need to be about. Anyway, use that same reasoning when applied to Christian truth claims and Christianity will be vindicated. A quick illustration of this, because it's Anglican. It's an Anglican illustration. Back in the 18th century, there was a critic of the Christian faith named David Hume. David Hume did the most devastating work against the miraculous that's ever been done related to the Christian truth claims. And part of what Hume said is, you know, Christianity can't possibly be true and the resurrection couldn't have possibly occurred because everything we know about Christianity and the resurrection is written by people who had an axe to grind, namely the apostles. Uh, you can't trust... Is, is anything written by a really objective viewer? Somebody who stood outside of it? You know, some Roman official? No. No, it's written by the boys, the disciples who had an axe to grind. So the conclusion is Christianity is wrong and false. The resurrection never occurred. Well, there was an Anglican bishop operating in the early 19th century around Hume's time. And he got a hold of Hume's reasoning and wrote a little book. And the reasoning applied went something like this. You know, David Hume is a marvelous thinker. 
here's what he says about Christianity. If somebody gives you the story about Christianity that's really close to it, uh, you probably can't trust it. I've applied Hume's reasoning to a contemporary supposed person that lives today, Napoleon Bonaparte. All we know, did you know this? This Anglican bishop said, did you know all we know about Napoleon comes from two biased groups, the French who worship him and the English who hate his guts. You can't possibly get an objective view of Napoleon through that kind of bias. Conclusion, Napoleon never existed. He wrote a book called Historic Doubts Relative to Napoleon Bonaparte. It was a tour de force. It was an apologetical classic, and it's back on your book table there where you can get the reprinted version of it with an introduction by me to Watley and his apologetic. What did he do as an astute defender of the faith? He took a flawed reasoning and applied it to a contemporary example, Napoleon, and showed that it didn't work. If it doesn't work for somebody who's alive now, Napoleon, what do you think the results of it were applying it to Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago? It's a flawed methodology. In the same way, on the converse side, we argue that people using their everyday reasoning when weighing the evidence for Christianity should become Christians. All the reasonable doubt should be resolved on the side of Christianity. The case is beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, those are some suggestions about uh, apologetics. Um, I wanted to mention to you just very, very briefly uh, the case for Christianity. I, we weren't going to do this in any depth here tonight. Um, but it's something that is so basic. I want you to know how to go about establishing the case for Christianity. And this is in Defense Never Rest back there in Religion on Trial. Very simply, you start with the gospel. You don't give people problems they don't have. If the person, incredibly, there's so much biblical ignorance nowadays, people are shocked what the gospel is. I mean... I'm serious. There are people who have clue, no clue what the gospel is. They watch televangelists and they figure it's getting your hair done a certain way, having thousands of people and telling them that they're going to have the good life or being moral. They have no idea that it's about a total rescue, completely done by God, fully and completely. But if there are objections, this is a very short um, outline of what I present to people, very short, I'll just give you the points of it that establishes the case for Christianity. One, the primary source documents are the Gospels are primary source material. The Gospels are primary source material. All that means is I establish to them that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the best attested works of the life of Jesus. Even Bart Ehrman, a critic of the, of the New Testament incredibly, says the best documents on Jesus are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they come the earliest and they attest to being eyewitness or close associates of eyewitnesses. So I established that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are trustworthy primary source documents. Now, if you can establish this first point, the rest of this is like a grease skid. This is this first point sounds simple. 
uh, but it's where Christians have the least amount of training and need to do the most booking up. On what is the authority that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are primary source documents, that they are the most reliable documents of antiquity in terms of their manuscript tradition, the numbers of manuscripts, the numbers of copies that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John make all the ancient Greek and Latin texts look pale in comparison. There are thousands of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. A lot of these come early. I've got this all charted out in Defense Never Rests and Religion on Trial. But this is where you spend your time. If I have one hour with a non-Christian university class or any group of non-Christians, that's all I speak on is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are primary source documents. Because all the rest skids down very nicely. Once that's established, I go to my second point with them that in these trustworthy primary source documents, Jesus claims to be God in human flesh. That bubbles up from the text. He is not a Galilean Boy Scout in the actual text. He is not walking around helping little old ladies across the Sea of Galilee, being nice and moral to people. He claims to be God in the human flesh, and there's verses for this. Third, once you have him claim to be God in human flesh, non-Christians will say claims are cheap. Cheap. Anybody can claim anything. You can claim to be God in human flesh. Correct. So third, in these primary source documents, his death and resurrection is described in great detail. And fourth, his resurrection establishes his deity. A corollary to this, a final corollary to this is, if Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, whatever he says is true. And he happens to put his complete stamp of approval on the Old Testament, says every jot and tittle of it is correct, explicitly teaches on the beginning chapters of Genesis and their historicity, puts his stamp of approval on the story of Noah and on Jonah and the whale. So when you get Christians providing snotty little responses about that didn't really happen. Well, excuse me, Jesus, who died and rose again from the dead, thought it did. And he provides a bit of a better witness than you. <laughs> last time I checked, he rose from the dead. And last time I checked, you haven't. So he happens to claim to have been there. And I go with him. If Christ is, is God, what he says is true. He puts his total stamp of approval on the Old Testament and on the coming New Testament. That's the basic case for Christianity. I wasn't supposed to give it tonight, but I couldn't stand it. <laughs> and it's free. It's free. That was a free uh, outline of how to go about doing that. Again, you can get this in, in, uh, in loaves in the back. Um, those are some of the suggestions of do's and don'ts. And now we're going to move into a question and answer session, I believe, yeah, with so, the Matt. We'll just take one minute. Uh, don't go anywhere, but if you need to top off a drink or something, we're just going to... They need to drink now that they've things. heard what I've said? <laughs> that is we rather a common response. LaCroix, but, uh, it is a response, you. common. Um, so we'll put two chairs here, and I'm going to join you. Let me mention one other thing since you're taking your time and nobody's getting up. Um, one other resource in the back back there. Uh, I've always wanted to ask uh, an apologist that I work with every summer in Strasbourg, France, John Warwick Montgomery. If you don't know Montgomery, he's the author of over 60 books. 
in six languages. He's got, I don't forget how many earned degrees. When, when he has a spare weekend, most of us go to the beach. He gets a PhD. Um, but anyway, I think he's the most accomplished defender of the faith in Christendom alive today. Um, I have always wanted to sit down with him with a live audience and badger him as a non-Christian would with questions that non-Christians ask the way they ask it. And we did this at Patrick Henry College a few years back. And it's back there in the four-set DVD set asking all the questions that we're not going to get to tonight, uh, but asked by me and with some from a live audience at Patrick Henry and Montgomery answering it on everything from biblical authority to God is a moral monster in the Old Testament to dealing with contemporary social issues, uh, to the whole wide range of apologetical questions. So this is what that little thing is about. It's great for a Sunday school class. Uh, you can play one DVD a, a Sunday school session and then get in a fight. No, 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 no. Uh, but discuss how the answer was presented and how it could be improved upon. And if you think it can be improved upon by Montgomery, um, Good for you. You've got a career as an apologist. Uh, but another resource that we brought along for you to, to consider. I'm going to at least ask you questions. And if I don't like the question, I I'm going to badger say. you uh, because I'm, I'm a cradle atheist. Um, yeah, in the Episcopal are. Church, people like to say cradle Episcopalian. You're a cradle atheist. And I say, well, that's good for you. I was a cradle atheist. So I'm going to badger you like an atheist. Uh, no, that's not what I'm going to do. But at least if nobody asks any questions, I'll fill in the in the blanks. So maybe just to get the the juices uh, flowing. You know, we were talking in the car about something I think is really important: is how do you even get in the situations to even use the apologetics yeah. uh, to begin with? How do you find yourself, or what word do you have for for us to find ourselves in these conversations? Yeah, it's. Um I find that the more that I try to understand non-Christian objections to the faith, the more opportunities the Lord provides for me to run into somebody with that particular problem. It's uncanny uh, to me. Um, I look for opportunities. I try not to shove it down people's throats, but there are opportunities galore when you're sensitized to the fact that people are presenting their philosophy of life all the time, at least in California, all the time. I'll be with somebody and they say, you know, my yoga class is giving me such peace and purpose in life. I mean, there's a philosophy of life that's just been presented to you evangelically by somebody. They have found a good news and they're presenting it to you. Now, most Christians just say, oh my heavens, what do I do with that? Uh, and they're happy. So what, what am I going to do about that? Um, you know, there's an opportunity to sensitively say, um, you know, that, that's interesting. Christianity provides an answer to a, a personal problem um, that it sees as rebellion against God and provides eternal peace to that through the work of Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered that? That's what I would do and have on occasions. Uh, those are the kinds of opportunities I look for. Um, what I have found in my law practice, and I think I mentioned this, um, I, not, not to this group, but to somebody else who is here in Alabama, 
Um, my law office, I consider, I call it my the confessional, um, because I have lawyers and people from my firm come to me with their personal problems, and they know that I'm not going to one up the moralism on them. I am a lost sinner who found where bread is available. I still think that illustration is as good as can be. Uh, I am a lost, hungry beggar who found bread telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's how I view my Christian life. And I have found people responsive to opening up to that rather than I'm the moral high ground. Uh, we have had Mormons... Uh, this is being taped, but I don't care. I'm at the top of my firm at this point, and if they throw me out, it's good. We have had Mormons at the firm who lead with their morality, who are always talking about how morally right and nice and wonderful they are. And I don't see any of my partners going to them with talking about the serious issues of their life. So be realistic about your sin. Uh, don't try and play the moral high ground with anybody. Uh, we are as fallen as the next person. And look for opportunities there and read widely. I can't emphasize enough. Even read in areas that you aren't naturally attracted to. Um, I've grown up in California where the height of music was the Beach Boys. Um, I have had to learn an appreciation of Johann Sebastian Bach because of the apologetical opportunities I've had through studying the work and life of J.S. Bach. And why Bach is the biggest evangelism in J evangelist in Japan today. His music is played evangelistically in Japan and bringing more people into saving faith with Jesus Christ than any other missionary, all the missionaries probably combined. Um, it's, it's trying to find those areas that people are, are concerned about uh, and have concerns about as non-Christians that you learn uh, to deal with. I'm not science-oriented. It's a struggle for me to read technical science texts, but I have them in my library. I have stuff on the second law of thermodynamics. I haven't read all of them, uh, but I know where to go if I need an explanation of somebody about the second law of thermodynamics and the contingency argument. Same with other arguments. Stuff that's not in my bailiwick, my comfort zone, we have to get off our backside and care enough about non-Christians' predicament to understand their situation. And that's what Peter, I believe, is talking about when he says, defend the faith with reverence. Show people that you understand what they believe. Ask them questions. Be a good listener and ask them questions about it. Explain to me, I've never been involved in Druidism, Rastafarianism, Scientology. Explain to me what you believe. And by the time the person has done that, uh, you'll have an education and then you can say, you know, I got to get back to you and talk about a little bit more in depth with you. I do this with the Mormons when they come to the door doorstep. You get a half an hour, bring your big gun, bring your bishop, go for it. You got a half an hour. Absolutely. I won't ask anything. I won't interject. I'll ask questions. But then you've got a half an hour from me. And that's the way it goes at my doorstep. Um, JWs are, can be the same way. Give them their opportunity, understand what they're saying, and then present the gospel to them. Jehovah's Witness. Right, Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, yeah right. I think there's evangelistic opportunity with Help Me Rhonda. 
perhaps. Really? I was thinking Surfing USA was a particularly good one. Any questions from, from you all? Like I said, we can go anywhere based on what he said, or if you have a burning question. Yeah, please. And thank you so much for your presentation. You're welcome. Thank you. Things that I have read show that we're losing our young people because the lie has been perpetrated that you can't believe the Bible. I mean, Genesis is just a mere story. The earth is billions of years old, and it goes on and on, and we you know, evolve from eggs, yada, yada. So that has taken children raised in Christian homes, and they say around middle school years, we start losing them because of what our schools are teaching. So my question to you is, how do we combat that? Not as necessarily individual, but even in society. Yeah. So for I, the sake of the recording, let's try to repeat the question. Yeah, the qu question is, um, we're losing the young people in the church. A lot of it comes out when they go into a secular situation or into school and they learn that uh, the world is billions of years old, seems to be in conflict with what the Bible teaches. People are one foot out. Uh, what can we do to combat that? Well, first, we can be doing a better job in apologetics starting as early as possible. Fifth grade isn't too early to start basic apologetical training. Um, we emphasize all confirmation class, in, and I'm in the Lutheran church, so that's a big deal. Seventh and eighth grade confirmation class. Johnny went to confirmation. Johnny never uh, is involved after that with dealing with how to then defend the doctrine he's memorized or she has memorized. Apologetics early on in the church will help that. Having adults involved and parents involved with those apologetical questions will help it if the parent has a good book to provide a, a solid answer on that. Um, that uh, outline I put in the back of Defense Never Rests has five or six books on evolution that are helpful to do. Here's... Uh, something I want to caution you about. When you're doing apologetics, you are not doing systematic theology. That means you have more options in getting people over problems than you do if you're doing a strict systematic theology. If I was doing a strict systematic theology, I might well conclude the first three chapters of Genesis are meant to be taken absolutely literal, six 24-hour days, that's it, case closed, boom. Well, in fact, there are more apologetical options available. And I'll tell the non-Christian, even if you're right, even if you're right that this, the age of the earth is billions of years old, John Lennox shows in his book, Seven Days That Divide the World, there's an unknown amount of years between Genesis 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, could have been a long time passing before God created the heavens and the earth. Could have been a long period of time. All you need to know is, is that there are orthodox believing Christians who believe in the entire authority of Scripture, who hold that Scripture teaches an old earth version and that the first chapters of Genesis are not meant to be taken literal six 24-hour days. Uh, whether that has theological problems or not is not your issue. Your issue at this point in doing apologetics is to get people over that hurdle because one damaging approach to this is to give a non-Christian the attitude and the idea that they have to deny all of modern science to become a Christian. 
I do not think that is smart apologetically. I think that is barking up the wrong tree. I think we want to provide the, the reasonable option. That is that there are believing Orthodox Christians who hold to the full authority of Scripture, who are Christian believers, who hold that the first few chapters of Genesis are not to be taken strictly literally, but are meant to be poetical. I, I do not say that is my position. If a non-Christian asks me, I'll tell them what my position is. But I will tell them, that can't keep you from considering the case for Jesus Christ. I then will present the case for Jesus Christ and find out that once the person becomes a Christian, then I want them to get the view of Scripture that Jesus had. And when you get the view of Scripture that Jesus has, you realize he pulls out a historical Adam and Eve pretty quickly and says, you know, his teaching on marriage is connected to Adam and Eve's literal historicity. I want to get aligned to the guy that rose again from the dead. So we need to get back into the Sunday school curriculum, an apologetic orientation, starting no later than seventh grade. Confirmation class, if you have it in the Anglican church here, should have apologetics woven all the way through it. So that those ten questions that non-Christians ask is part of confirmation. I push on this in the Lutheran church wherever I go. So in not just asking all the questions about the creed, the Lord's Prayer, the sacraments, and all having all the theology right. But what about the following question? How would you answer, Johnny, this question? The Bible was written by drunken monks in 700 AD. <laughs> uh, that's the basic question they want to get. So get it into confirmation. Realize that when you're dealing with non-Christians on this, it's not a good idea to make them think that they've got to dump all of modern geology to become a Christian that there are Christians that hold to this being in harmony with a strong and basic view of what Scripture is trying to teach. that all right? Yeah. I, I, have some, to I have some follows, but I want to see maybe some other people have some other things. Yeah, yeah Charles. Yeah, this is kind of on the same science thing. Do you consider it helpful to point out to people if they have the sort of science objection, to point out to them that nearly all of the first people that we would consider to be scientists yes. were actually Christian clergymen yes. who were looking to try to understand the complexity and beauty of God's creative work. Yes. Or is that going that, too no, far? It, so the, so the question is, oh. uh, is it helpful to point out that early scientists several hundred years ago were Christians doing science for the sake of better understanding God? Very definitely worth doing that. I tried to do that in Religion on Trial, talking about from what what the impact of Christianity being true has been on the arts, on education, and on science. That science would have been stillborn, says Stanley Jackie, if it had not been for the Christian underpinning that God created the world in an intelligible way, and that we could actually perceive that. And that the early great scientists were essentially, almost universally, strong Orthodox Christians. That's worth pointing out. I think it's worth knowing. And there's a great work that's been done on that. Stanley Jackie is, J-A-K-I, is the great author on the topic. Another is a guy named Al Schmidt, wrote a book called Under the Influence. I like the, it's now called How Christianity Changed the World, but I like Under the Influence better. <laughs> Told Al, they, they didn't upgrade the title when they made it How Christianity Changed the World. But it has a whole chapter on the rise of science 
based on Christian theology. Certainly the underpinnings of Christian theology were supportive of the inductive process, the scientific method, uh, and all the, many of the great scientists were believing Orthodox Christians. It's worth knowing, and that they are today. Some solid, uh, believing Christians are strong uh, advocates of, of aggressive science. Francis Collins is one, the DNA Project. Um, now, he is not a six-day, 24-hour creationist, but he's a believing Christian, and holds to the full authority of Scripture, and is a contemporary scientist. Yeah? Um, I, I've done a lot of reading about the, the scientific defense of Christianity, and uh, I'm always blown away at uh, the argument that science uh, refutes uh, the existence of, of Christ or the resurrection or God. Uh, there seems to be overwhelming scientific evidence in all areas of science that are extremely supportive of Christianity. Um, you take, for example, the Cambrian explosion, mm -hmm. uh, where we had very complicated, complex life in a very short window of time. Yeah. Uh, the archaeologist, Sir William Ramsey, as yes. archaeological science, but still he went over as a atheist to establish the fact that none of these things in the Bible existed where they said they did, and he dug up all of the stuff, and it was right where they said it was, and he became a Christian. Yeah. Michael Behe, uh, biochemist, who uh, talks about the cilia in the lungs, yeah. uh, structures that are irreducibly complex. Right. They could not have He's just been at Strasbourg. Yeah, you've been <laughs> at Strasbourg? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a sidewalk apologist. They're, they're good, good. But, I mean, I, I, I don't understand science refuting the existence of God, the existence of Christ, or any of this. I, it, it just is a fallacious argument. Yeah. Maybe, you know, it would be good, I'm thinking, hearing these, could you sort of get at the difference between science and scientism? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, because I, I'm, I'm with you, like, with my kids bringing all these questions together, the more I have my kids look at things that are scientific, the more their sort of confirmation that there must be a God actually is strengthened if we look at a telescope in outer space. But something that's shifted is this sort of scientism. Yeah. I can absolutely appreciate what's being said about the fact that science, when done credibly, supports the biblical account in, in many, many ways. The problem is finding credible scientists that support that view and that you can read on the topic, rather than laity that don't have a PhD in molecular biology like Behe does. We need credible Christian scientists that you're citing on this. People that have done the work, that have gone to the reputable secular universities and gotten the undergraduate and graduate degrees to speak on this. This is happening. It's happening more and more. There's a list of, of people in, in Defense Never Rests and one of the annotated footnotes of different four or five books on this that you need to do your homework on. My concern is whenever we get into those discussions, the non-Christian hears you as a layman saying all these things about oh, the, the Cambrian explosion and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't have the scientific credentials that make them stop and say, well, maybe 
Maybe I really ought to stop and consider that. Um, so we, we need to, my point is, first point before I get to Matt's question, we need to encourage the next generation to get the strongest degrees they can get in the air, in the fields of science possible, to go into this to write, write the refutations that are being done by the Discovery Institute, uh, Stephen Meyer, and a whole host of them, so that that kind of stuff continues to be done on a large scale. Matt's question was on the difference between science and scientism, which is really the, when science is lost doing factual, empirical, fact-driven work, and in fact is doing philosophy in a subtle way, in such a subtle way that people don't realize this has gone from the scientific realm to philosophy. Instead of just staying with what the facts are, they're going to the interpretation of the facts. And that can be a very subtle shift that can happen without people perceptibly knowing that. All of a sudden, somebody in a white lab coat says God doesn't exist, when all they've done is a couple of experiments in, in, in the laboratory, and it's a, an absurd basis for them to be opining on uh, issues related to uh, the existence of God. So be careful when that happens in discussions, and be a good question asker. What is the science behind that um, that assertion? Aren't you really, it sounds to me like you're doing philosophy here. It sounds to me like there isn't evidence that you're saying supports your view, but now you're talking about a view of the world that has to be assumed in order to buy into your interpretation. Let's let facts drive this discussion. If the facts drive it to intelligent design, for example, Behe and the whole group at the Discovery Institute say, the facts alone, if science teachers in high school just taught facts, it would lead to the viewpoint that there is intelligence behind the universe. We're not saying it's a Christian God, we're not saying what the nature of this intelligent being is, but there is definitely intelligence behind it. That's where we can stay, say the evidence draws us to that conclusion and to draw it to a different conclusion that no, actually all this evidence of design, uh, the Cambrian explosion in geology and a host of other things that scientists operating out of the Discovery Institute and other places say uh, supports the, the Christian viewpoint um, should lead us to be um, good question askers of those who are presenting uh, the science, scientism viewpoint. We should be able to be very good question askers and uh, point out when the evidence isn't supporting their position. The other person to read on this is a long time classic book by a lawyer, Philip Johnson, Darwin on Trial. That was the classic groundbreaker in the subject and it's in the annotated bibliography back there. Um, Johnson simply was an evidence professor at Berkeley when he wrote Darwin on Trial. And he said, you know, it was like there was this orthodoxy that nobody would challenge. It's like, and I'm not saying climate change doesn't occur, okay? I'm not here to get into that debate, so don't ask me. But there's this universal orthodoxy that anybody who doesn't believe this is a moron and is anti-scientific. And, and Johnson said, that just seems like that's kind of overblowing what the evidence really suggests. And he began to ask the questions as a lawyer of Darwinian evolution and ended up writing Darwin on Trial, which was a groundbreaking uh, book, which I highly suggest all of you get a hold of 
for how somebody not scientifically trained knew how to ask the questions about Darwinian evolution. So maybe we could kind of use these thoughts as a case study for really coming back to your main point, which is focusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just as a case study, you're having a conversation with someone, you try to talk to them about Jesus, and then they say, which seems like a non sequitur to us, but to them it makes sense to ask a question about science, say evolution. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Well, as I mentioned to this uh, lady who asked um, earlier, um, I say, look, we could spend an, an enormous amount of time talking about evolution. I want you to know there are people who hold the full authority of Christianity and the, and the truth of the Christian uh, revelation who hold to uh, that, that evolution explains the beginnings of the first chapters of Genesis and that evolution it can be synthesized and harmonized with biblical revelation. Okay, And with that said, even though that is the case, that it can be harmonized by certain Christians that are Orthodox Christians, that hasn't stopped them from being confronted with the case for Christianity, for who Jesus Christ is, what he claimed, and what his historical claims happen to be. So I, I really suggest that you not get bogged down in trying to go blow for blow refuting Darwinian evolution. I'm suggesting the books back there, uh, the books by Johnson, by Behe, um, by Michael Denton, by um, a number of the different folks, to equip you to ask the questions. And to get those kinds of books, Icons of Evolution and the other books, to non-Christians, to set up the questions for them. Um, But you've got to move them beyond that if you think you're going to get them off of evolution before they become a Christian, you may be waiting an awful long time in this culture. Because Darwinian evolution has been in the stronghold position for decades. It is now you know, almost impossible to get a competent degree, PhD, without holding to some form of neo-Darwinian evolution. Um, so you want to try and move past that issue um, try and keep it on the side burner. Say, even if it was the case, if you're right that the universe is billions of years old, that Adam had long arms so that he could scratch his feet without bending over, uh, the fact is he was a morally culpable being, whatever he looked like, and we are morally culpable beings. Do you understand what the claim of Christianity is? It is that we are incapable of keeping our own moral standard, let alone God's standard, and that we deserve uh, punishment and judgment for that, and that has been dealt with by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Can I explain to you the evidence for the resurrection? Get on to the resurrection. Get on to this. This stuff is eternally fascinating. Darwinism, evolution, creationism, but I'm telling you, as I told you my suggestions, if you focus on the beginning of time, is when we know the least amount. We have a few chapters in Genesis. The end times. We have the book of Daniel. We have a little bit in Ezekiel. We have the book of Revelation from statements in Thessalonians. We don't have a tremendous focus on the end times in Scripture. We have a focus on the center of history, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Center your apologetic on what Scripture centers it on. 
If you don't, you'll be going down these rabbit holes until hell freezes over. Um, we are we're going to shift culture, society, ultimately on this issue of Darwinianism. I have no idea what we have in store. But it's going to be a, take a while for that to happen because we need to have the, the really competent scientists with the competent degrees writing the stuff at a high level to get the culture back to where it should be on that. So I want to wrap it up, but I just I want it, uh, to be clear for the folks the sort of kind of mental calculus that you have going on. I hope you're seeing the steps of, and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. You're wrong. Uh, <laughs> oh no, sorry. You know, try to get well, first of all maybe listen for an opportunity yeah. to share the gospel based on something they've said. For example, the person talking about peace. In right. yoga, well, I'm going to talk to you about peace. Can I talk to you about Jesus somehow related to peace, the gospel? You've shared the gospel. The person raises an objection, potentially, that may seem like a non sequitur, but for them it's not. It could be science, could be anything. Respect the objection, right? But as exactly. briefly as possible, uh, respect it, provide a, a logical response. And get them back to the gospel. Right. And that's basically it, right? Right. That, rinse, wash, rinse, and repeat. <laughs> right, 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 right. But but it's it's listening so that you you're you're not in a situation where you're just there to shift the conversation to what you want to talk about. If somebody says I found peace through yoga, uh, that, that's interesting. Explain to me what you found is, is peace. What, what do you think is the problem that peace is the answer to? Because Christianity has an understanding of what that brokenness is. That it's a fundamentally at a personal level with God. And it's incapable of being harmonized, integrated, and ultimately dealt with outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. But that everybody has this fracture internally. And if you put together in sensitively the internal pieces of your machinery... You'll put them together. You'll find that there's a cross-shaped vacuum in the heart of every human being, and that's the kind of direction I'd go with somebody from that kind of background. Yeah. Can I ask yeah. One one last question. Oh, Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Getting to the resurrection. Yeah. That is what I have run into with people because they're maybe not too scientific enough, and maybe they're more peace, you know. But anyway, the resurrection, and it's, you know, I can. He was a wonderful man, Jesus Christ, yeah. and what he said was love, and I totally agree. And even the Muslims say he was a good prophet. But this resurrection right, is a real this, problem. Come on, walking, you know, rising from the dead. Let's let's right. just say that was really over little, the top. You know, I believe in what he says. Yeah. But let's let's take it one more step. And I always go to Peter the denial, the disciples running as cowards as far away as possible. Good. And Good. the only thing I can come up with, ignorant me, is that, boy, I keep running. Yeah. You know, unless he truly came and said, no, here I am, touch yeah. me, feel me, I am here, you know, I would still be running towards, you know, yeah. whatever. And, but I'm just... I'm not, you know, help me with the resurrection. Right, right. This question is on the, the resurrection. 
it's interesting that people will say Jesus was a nice man and did a lot of nice things. And my question is simply, how do you know that? That gets back to the basis for believing anything about Jesus, which is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, if you you got well, I got that because that kind of fits from what I think Jesus would be like. But the same material, eyewitness material, that presents him giving the Sermon on the Mount presents the resurrection in there. There is no break in who is giving that material and that information. And the fact that it doesn't fit with our view of how the world should operate is no argument against it. The world is full of all kinds of interesting, unusual things that I can't explain. That the mature person goes with facts and evidence no matter if, whether they have a logical explanation for it or not. I mean, it's the same, in one sense, the argument for the Trinity. I believe the Trinity because it's taught by the data of the eyewitness documents that are confirmed by Jesus Christ. Uh, I didn't come up with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the evidence pushes me that way. And I don't, whether I can logically explain the resurrection or not, it makes sense to me. A mature scientific way to deal with data that I don't agree with is not to suppress it or ignore it. So I'm going with the scientific approach to the resurrection. I'm going with where the data pushes me. And I don't say, oh, oh, it's getting to a world that I don't understand. They must be wrong. I'm looking to see if, if the evidence is strong. Uh, who gave the evidence? What's, what's the reliability of that testimony? Was it circulated in hostile witnesses? Did they have a price that they paid for getting the story right? And if so, I'm sorry, this resurrection seems to be a fact of history. You know, there are people that believe the resurrection is a fact who are not Christians. Lapid, the Jewish theologian, has written a book on the resurrection of Christ. Believing the resurrection, believing it is a fact, is not enough. That's just simply uh, assent to it. You've got to also have trust that that fact of his resurrection, death on the cross, is pro-ma for you, for me. That's what Christianity gets at from it. So I, I would encourage you with people like that uh, to say there's no basis for dividing the content of the Jesus that you like from the Jesus that's resurrected. It all comes from the same source. Well, uh, we're out of time. We can't uh, be out of time yet because I had a PR thing I wanted to do. I was going to ask you, do you have any, uh, any final things you want to give us, resources or plugs? Free. Free. This is free. Um, I don't know if you saw back there, there's a brochure for the Academy in Strasbourg. We've been doing this for 25 years, uh, equipping laity in the defense of the faith. It's a 12-day program, all in English in Strasbourg, France, in 10 different subject areas, four hours in each one, philosophical, apologetic, scientific, legal, biblical authority, uh, cult, sex, world's religions, uh, literary apologetics. Matt went there last year. Um, He's invited back, even though he had to get him out of jail. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, it's in the wonderful French Rhineland. Uh, it's an opportunity to deal with apologetical issues in much more depth than the opportunity we have here. Uh, we have a website. You can check it out, uh, all the different details. But something I wanted to mention, we usually fill up. We never advertise because we don't have to. It's word of mouth after 25 years. 
Um, we've had a cancellation for this summer's July session in Strasbourg. Somebody who can't come has to postpone coming. And so if you're interested in coming this July to the Academy, talk to us and we could potentially fit you in. It's 20 lo limited to 20 people so that we can have dinners together. Uh, there's four faculty. I teach there every year. John Warwick Montgomery is the director, teaches every year. Then we have two different faculty each year. Check out the brochure. Check out the website. If not, join us this year. Think about joining us next year uh, where you can really deal with the objections in much more depth and detail. We give an extensive reading list uh, in preparation for the academy to get you ready to answer the questions. But this is, does not require any advanced education and apologetics whatsoever. We have, in years gone by, we've had a brain surgeon from Hong Kong sitting next to a housewife from Jamaica, next to a pastor from Podunk, Missouri, um, next to a, a college student undergrad. So all united in one thing, that they want to learn how to deal with non-Christian objections to Christian faith. So love to have you there. Make sure you get a brochure. If we didn't hand one to you, get one as you go out. That's the PR. Yeah. Thank you for letting me do that. Yeah, and if uh, you want, you were there. I was there, and I, you know, the give a testimonial. We haven't had a testimonial. <laughs> testimonial. Yeah. No, I mean, no, no, look, that's all right. It, look, if you if you've got if you got two weeks and you want to invest in something like this, because it really, I mean, it's a, it's an investment of time. It's it's affordable though, relatively speaking. Uh, you know, you'll find probably nothing better, especially for, you know, not, you can go without any sort of a, a, a prerequisite in terms yeah. of uh, yeah. education. Uh, stick, if you want to stick around here and get to know uh, Craig, he'll be here for a little bit. If you want to ask any questions, you can also ask Ellen about the, the program. As I've said, there are the resources on the table over there to buy uh, some of his books and other things that he's mentioned. Remember that there's a discussion group. If you're interested in uh, talking about this more and reading his book, Religion on Trial, uh, uh, please make sure you put your name on that email list that's going around, or there's one in the front room. Uh, or talk to Margot Cooney, wherever she is. Do you want to raise your hand, stand up back there? Uh, she'll be the one coordinating that discussion group, so you could just talk uh, straight to her. Uh, and as I've said, we've made the video. It'll come out eventually. If, if you've been uh, uh, touched by this somehow, you think you want to share it with someone, uh, keep an eye out for that online, and you'll be able to share it eventually. I think that's all I have other than to say thank you for coming out, and thank you, Craig. Thank you. Would you say a prayer for us? Would, would you say a prayer real quick as we leave? Would you pray for us, Craig? Sure. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to talk about the work of your Son and that we might bring the gospel to all creatures. Help us to focus on what is objective and not ourselves. We admit that we are always turned in on ourselves, wanting to turn conversations to our own needs. Help us to think and care more for the needs of others and particularly for those who have not been saved. Bring us in contact with these people and help us to be good stewards of our time and effort and resources in that regard, that Christ may be preached, is crucified, resurrected again, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.